Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and once again, I'm so happy to have you with me. I say this every single episode. I never thought I would be doing this this long. Um, I'm so happy to see all the listeners from all over the world. Um, I see Turkey coming out of nowhere. Um, I'm just always excited when I see new countries tuning in to listen. Um, I just never ever thought that I would reach people all over the world. Um, I just really thought maybe some people from the U.S. would tune in. So it just really makes me excited. I see that Sweden is still hanging in there. The Netherlands. I'm just absolutely excited to see you guys. Now, I know I promised you a part two to... um, Richard Alpert, but I've got some emails um, and some messages on Instagram from some people um, expressing some concerns, some people on both sides, some people who do feel he was a con artist as Ram Dass and some people who felt he was a great spiritual leader. But um, I want to do some more research. I want to have a more fleshed out part two. So there will be a part two. It's just going to take some more time while I do some more thorough research. I want to give you guys like a very more fleshed out story. I don't want to like just piece things together. I want to make sure I have all the information. So we're going to look at another one of his contemporaries this week. And like I said, once I get all the information together and I have a more cohesive picture, uh, then I will do the part two. So this week we're going to look at um, someone else. We are going to look at the Bhagwan Shri Rajinish. Uh, So how do we tell when a religious movement ceases to be novel or unusual and becomes a cult? To use the term cult too casually risks tarring the merely unconventional for which America has long been a safe harbor. In the early 19th century, the burned over district of central New York State, so named for the religious passions of those who settled there following the Revolutionary War, gave rise to a wave of new movements, including Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, and Spiritualism, or people who talked to the dead or had seances. It was an era, as historian Sidney E. Alstrom wrote, when farmers became theologians, offbeat village youths became bishops, and odd girls became prophets. When the California gold rush of 1849 enticed settlers westward, the nation's passion for religious novelty moved with them. By the early 20th century, sunny California had replaced New York as America's laboratory for the avant-garde spirituality. Without the weight of tradition and ecclesiastical structures that bring some predictability to congressional life, some movements were characterized by a make-it-up-as-you-go approach that ultimately came to redefine people, money, and propriety as movable parts intended to benefit each organization. Many academics and observers of cult phenomena, such as psychologist Philip G. Zimbardo of Stanford, agree on four criteria to define a cult. The first behavior is control or monitoring of where you go and what you do. The second is information control, such as discouraging members from reading criticism of the group. The third is thought control, placing sharp limits on doctrinal questioning. And the fourth is emotional control using humiliation or guilt. Yet, at times, these traits can also be detected within mainstream faith. So I would add two more categories, financial control and extreme leadership. 
Some of the things they leave out here is there's a specific method in which cults use to indoctrinate people or recruit. And one of the first things is love bombing. They make you feel so welcome and completely just wrapped up in the group that you can't help but be drawn into them. So it's why they try to uh, focus on people who are estranged from their families or people who don't have family uh, because they're easy targets, because they're people who are craving acceptance, they're craving a place to fit in, a lot of them are craving family. So that's why they start with love bombing. They start with making you feel so accepted and absolutely wrapped in warmth that you can't help but absolutely just fall in step with them. Financial control translates into levying ruinous dues or fees, or effectively hiring members and placing them on a stipend or a sales quota. Consider the once familiar image of the Hare Krishna selling books in airports, or a friend of mine, a respected officer with a nonprofit organization, who told me the story of leaving the Moonies. And it was a complicated problem of a massive hole in his resume, reflecting years and years and years of trying to get jobs. This happens quite a bit when people are able to leave a coal. It's difficult for them to get jobs because they have massive holes in their resumes. And how do you explain to an employer? Well, yeah, I didn't work for 10 years because I was part of a cult. I didn't work for 10 years because, you know, I was part of the Hare Krishnas or I was part of the Moonies or I was a Branch Davidian. Like, that's not really something that you want to say to an employer. Problems with extremist leadership can be more difficult to spot. The most tragic cult of the last century was Jim Jones' People's Temple, which ended with mass murder and suicide in the jungles of Ghana in 1978. Only a few early observers understood Jones as a dangerously erratic man. Known for his racially diverse San Francisco congregation, Jones was widely feted on local political scenes in the 70s. He was not some West Coast New Ager gone bad. He emerged instead from the mainstream Christian church, the Disciples of Christ, which sometimes lent a reassuring middle American tone to his sermons. Yet every coercive religious group harbors one telltale trait, secrecy. As opposed to a cult, religious culture ought to be simple for one to enter or exit, for members or observers as any nation. Members should experience no impediment to their relationships, ideas, or travel, and the group's finances should be incredibly transparent. Its doctrine need not be conventional, but it should be knowable to outsiders. Absent these qualities, an unorthodox religion can descend into something much, much, much darker. Bhagwan Shuri Rajanish, otherwise known as Chandra Mohan Juan, was born on December 11, 1931, in Chakwada, India. He lived with his grandparents during his early youth, and then with his parents. He was an intelligent but rebellious child. In 1951, Rajanish graduated from high school and started attending Hikrani College in Jalapur, but was forced to transfer to D.N. John College after his disruptive behavior put him at odds with one of the professors. In 1953, after taking a year off from studies to soul search and meditate, Rajanish claimed that he had achieved enlightenment. He returned to school, however, and after graduating with a bachelor's degree in philosophy, he went on to pursue a master's in philosophy at Sager University. Following his graduation in 1957, 
Rajanish accepted a position as an assistant professor of philosophy at Ropkar Sanskrit College, but his radical ideas soon put him at odds with the institution's administration, and he was forced to find work elsewhere, eventually becoming a professor at the University of Jabalpur. Concurrent with his teachings at the University of Jabalpur, Rajanis traveled throughout India, spreading his unconventional and controversial ideas about spirituality. Among his teachings was the notion that sex was the first step toward achieving superconsciousness, because isn't it always in a cult? By 1964, he started conducting meditation camps and recruiting followers, and two years later, he resigned from his professorship to focus more fully on spreading his spiritual teachings. In the process, he became something of a pariah and earned himself the nickname, the sex guru. In 1970, Rajanish introduced the practice of dynamic meditation, which he asserted enables people to experience divinity. The prospect enticed young Westerners to come reside at his ashram in Pune, India, and become Rajanish devoted disciples called sannyasins. In their quest for spiritual enlightenment, Rajanish's followers took new Indian names, dressed in orange and red clothes, and participated in group sessions that sometimes involved both violence and sexual promiscuity. By the late 1970s, the six-acre ashram was so overcrowded that Rajanish sought a new site to relocate to. However, his movement had become so controversial that the local government threw up various roadblocks to make things difficult for him. Tensions became, came to a head in 1980 when a Hindu fundamentalist attempted to assassinate Rajanish. Facing ongoing pressure from the government and authorities, traditional religious groups, in 1981, Rajanish fled to the United States with 2,000 of his disciples. Rajanish's group purchased the approximately 64,000-acre Big Muddy Ranch in Oregon's Jefferson and Wasco counties, where John Wayne and Katherine Hepburn had once filmed movies. The space, which covered about 100 square miles, a few hours east of Portland, soon became home to thousands of Rajanese sannyasians, our followers, many of whom came from upper and middle class families in America and Europe, which he named Rancho Rajanish. There, Rajanish and the sannyasians started building their own city, which they called Rajanish Puram. Disproving neighbors contacted local officials in an attempt to close down Rajanish Puram, asserting that it violated Oregon's land use laws. But Rajanish was victorious in court and continued to expand his commune. In the U.S., though, he before this, he had first settled in Montclair, New Jersey, where the group had purchased a castle and operated one of its centers out of a storefront. They were very concerned about property values, their children, and about this becoming an international headquarters for a free sex cult. Not long after Rajanish relocated the ranch to Oregon, this began years of escalating tensions between his followers and dozens of locals. Many people in the area already were particularly worried about the effects that it would have on the town of Antelope, which was not far from the group's property. We thought they were friendly enough, Mayor Margaret Hill told people in 1982. Lots of food, lots of free brews. It seemed like a great party. Such seeming friendliness faded at the Rajanishas, pushed first to incorporate their ranch as its own city, Rajanish Puram, 
then, through quirks in the state's election laws, use their numbers to try and take control of Antelope City Council. I mean, they're coming in like a sledgehammer. Think about it. Thousands of people come from nowhere to the outskirts of this small town in the middle of the desert. And the first thing they do is try and incorporate, which doesn't work, so that they don't have their own town. And then they try and take over the city council. I mean, the least you could do is go into town, introduce yourself, shake some hands, kiss some babies. Obviously, they're not going to let you take over their city council. They don't even know you. You just seems like some pussy people, pushy people who tried to force your way into their town. So after this, the remaining people on the council became upset with reason. This um, came despite unsuccessful attempts by locals to e abolish the entire town rather than let these newcomers uh, come in and lead it if they were so elected. The group was also able to purchase a sizable amount of real estate within the town, including its general store. Yeah, I would be furious. Like, I've lived here for how long and these people come out of nowhere and take over my town that I've de devoted my life and my time to? With the time, the ranch itself developed to include three, a 300-seat cafeteria, several barns, several greenhouses, a mall, dozens of homes, and a 160-room hotel. Such expansion efforts were met in turn by pushes from local and state officials charging that the group was involved in voter fraud and other unscrupulous tactics. The Rajanishas argued that this resistance was thinly disguised religious discrimination. At various points, the commune was described as housing approximately 1,400, possibly 3,500, and then possibly 5,000 people with Rajanese representatives maintaining to the media that there were 200,000 followers worldwide. But you're still not disclosing to the people in this town who were scared of what you're going to do to the landscape of the town, how many people are actually there. So I feel like they're justified in being worried about you. After being denied building permits for Rajanese Purim, the commune leaders sought to gain political control over the rest of the county by influencing the November 1984 county election. Their goal was to win two of the three seats on the Wasco County Commission, as well as the sheriff's office. Sorry, that's a bit much. Their attempts to influence the election included share a home program in which they transported thousands of homeless people. I remember this. I remember this. The, I remember this. Transported thousands of homeless people to Rajesh Puram and attempted to register them to vote to inflate the constituency of the voters for the group's candidates. The Wasco County Clerk countered this attempt by enforcing a regulation that required all new voters to submit their qualifications when registering to vote. So, in other words, this was an ID rule before our current ID rules. So like 20, 30 years ago, this was ID to vote before ID to vote, which we have in the United States. Certain states are requiring people to show ID, which disproportionately affects people who are low income because I have clients in my practice who can't afford toiletries, yet people expect them to maintain an ID, which is like $25 to renew your ID, but they don't even have $5 to buy toiletries. The commune leadership planned to sicken and incapacitate the voters in Dallas County, where most of the voters resided, to sway the election. Approximately 12 people were involved in plots to employ 
biological agents, and at least 11 were involved in planning them. No more than four appear to have been involved in the development of the plan, um, which took place at the Rajesh Pura Medical Laboratory. Not all of these were necessarily aware of the objectives of the work that they were doing. At least eight individuals helped spread this bacteria. The main planners of the attack included Sheila Silverman, otherwise known as Ma Anid Sheila. She was Rajanish's chief lieutenant. Diane Yvonne Onang, otherwise known as Ma Anand Puha, a nurse practitioner and secretary treasurer of Rajanish Medical Corporation. They purchased salmonella bacteria from a medical supply company in Seattle and a staff culture, and they had staff culturate in their labs within the commune. They contaminated the produce at the salad bar as a trial one. The group also tried to introduce pathogens into the water system. If successful, they planned to use the same technique closer to election day. They did not carry out the second part of the plan. The commune decided to boycott the election when it became clear those brought in through the share a home program would not be allowed to vote. Two visiting Wasco County commissioners were infected via glasses of water containing salmonella during a visit to the Rajis Purim on August 29, 1984. Both men fell ill and one was hospitalized. Afterward, members of Sheila's team spread salmonella on produce in grocery stores and on doorknobs and urinal handles in the county courthouse. These actions did not produce the desired effects. In September and October 1984, they contaminated the salad bars of 10 local restaurants with salmonella, infecting 751 people. Jesus! 45 people received hospital treatment, but all survived. The primary delivery tactic involved one member concealing a plastic bag containing a light brown liquid with salmonella, referred by the perpetrators to as salsa, and either spreading it on the food at the, no one noticed a random person spreading a brown liquid on the food at the salad bar or pouring stuff into the salad dressing. Wow. By September 24th, 1984, more than 150 people were violently, violently ill. By the end of September, all 751 cases of acute gastroenteritis were documented. Lab testing determined that all of the victims were infected with the same grade of salmonella. Symptoms included diarrhea, fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, headaches, and abdominal pain. Also, many had bloody stools. Victims ranged in age from infants born only two days after his mother caught the infection and initially give, who was initially given a 5% chance of survival all the way up to an 87-year-old woman. Local residents suspected the Rajanish followers were behind the poisonings the whole time. They turned out in droves on election day because of this to prevent the cult from winning any county positions, thus rendering the plot unsuccessful. The Rajanishas eventually withdrew their candidates from the November 1984 ballot. Only 239 of the commune's 7,000 residents <laughs> voted. <laughs> Doesn't that defeat the whole purpose? You're supposed to have more residents than the whole town. If only 239 of 7,000 residents voted, 
that totally defeats the whole purpose. Most were not even U.S. citizens and couldn't vote. Oh my God. So they couldn't even vote. So this was a foil plot from the beginning. The outbreak cost local restaurants hundreds of thousands of dollars and health officials shut down the salad bars of the affected establishments. Some residents featured further attacks and stayed home and didn't go out to eat any longer. One resident said people were so horrified and scared. People wouldn't go out. They would not go out alone. They were becoming prisoners in their own homes. Officials and investigators from a number of different state and federal agencies investigated the outbreak. Michael Skeels, director of the Oregon State Public Health Laboratory at the time, said that the incident provoked such a large public health investigation because it was the largest food-related outbreak in the history of the U.S. to date. The investigation identified the bacteria as Salmonera intrica typhirium and initially concluded that the outbreak had been due to food handlers and poor personal hygiene. Workers preparing food at the affected restaurants had fallen ill before most of the patrons. But Oregon Democratic Congressman James H. Weaver continued to investigate because he believed the officials' conclusions did not adequately explain things. He, he contacted physicians at the CDC and other agencies and urged them to investigate the Raji's Purim. According to Lewis Carter's book, Charisma and Control, many treated his concerns as paranoid or examples of religious bashing. On February 28, 1985, Weaver gave a speech at the United States House of Representatives in which he accused the Rajanishas of contaminating salad bar ingredients in eight different restaurants. As events later show, Weaver had presented a well-reasoned, if only circumstantial, case. These circumstantial elements were confirmed by evidence found after investigators gained access to the Raji's Purim several months later. Months later, starting in September 16, 1985, Rajanish, who had recently emerged from a four-year period of public silence and self-imposed isolation, although he did continue to meet with his assistant, convened a press conference. He stated that Sheila and 19 other commune leaders, including Puha, had left Rajanish Purim over the weekend and fled to Europe. He said that he had received information from commune residents that Sheila and her team had committed a number of heinous crimes. Calling them a gang of fascists, he said that they had tried to poison his doctor and Rajanish's female companion, as well as the Jefferson County District Attorney and the water system in Dallas. He said that he believed they had poisoned the county commissioner and Judge Willem Hulse and that they may have been responsible for the salmonella outbreak. He invited state and federal law enforcement officials out to investigate. His allegations were initially greeted with skepticism by outsiders. Oregon Attorney General Dave Fraunmeyer established a task force among the Wasco County Sheriff's Office, the Oregon State Police, and the FBI. Also, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. So before they were called ICE, which is Immigration Customs Enforcement, they were Immigration Naturalization Service. And also the National Guard to set up a headquarters on the ranch to investigate. They obtained search warrants and subpoenas. 50 investigators entered the ranch on October 2nd, 1985. Skeels found glass vials containing salmonella bactrol discs. In other words, laboratory grade versions of salmonella. 
in the laboratory of Rajani's Purim's medical clinic. Analysis by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, uh, at a lab in Atlanta confirmed that the bacteria at Rajis laboratory was an exact match to those who were sickened in the attack. The investigation also revealed experimentation at Rajis Purim with poisons, chemicals, and bacteria, which had been carried out during the attacks. Skeels described the scene at the laboratory as a back as a bacteriological freezer dryer for large-scale production of microbes. Investigators found a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook. For those of you who don't know, several people have used it to create bombs. And it's it's really just like a how-to for and for a lot of stuff, for bombs, for a lot of things. The literature on manufacture and usage of explosives military biowarfare, and many other things. Investigators believe that the commune had previously carried out similar attacks when they were in Salem, Portland, and other cities. According to court testimony, the plotters boasted that they had attacked a nursing home and a salad bar at the Mid-Columbia Medical Center, but no attempts were ever proven. As a result of the bioterrorism investigation, law enforcement officials discovered that there had been an aborted plot by the Rajanish to murder Charles Turner, a former United States attorney for Oregon. The mayor of Rajis Purim, David Barry Knapp, also known as Swami Krishna Deva, also known as KD, turned state's evidence and gave an account of his knowledge of the Salmonella attack to the FBI. He claimed that Sheila said she had talked with Rajanis about the plot to decrease voter turnout in the Dallas area by making people sick. Sheila said that Rajneesh commented that it was best not to hurt people, but if a few died, not to worry. In Miller's Germs, Biological Weapons in America's Secret War, this statement is attributed to Sheila. According to Katie's testimony, she played Doubters, a tape of Rajneesh's muffled voice saying, if it was necessary to do things to preserve my vision, then do it, and interpreted this to mean murder in his name was fine, telling doubters not to worry if a few people die they have to die according to the account of satya barty franklin when writing about theories about the tapes sheila claimed to have said as many of us knew she'd had a wide variety of bhagwan's discourse tapes edited over the years until they said only what she wanted them to say while ashram ranch videos and films had been spliced and edited to rewrite the histories and teachings. It was a process many of us, including me, had been involved in in one way or another. Whatever tape she had in her possession proved nothing. John J. Selfer, aka Swami Pramjananda, Sheila's husband, recalled in 2020, Sheila was very good at framing the issues in a way that would invite a Roshna's approval of whatever she had to do. She might ask a general broad question, get an answer, and then she would go back and use that as him authorizing it, She whatever she wanted. She would provide and limit information as it would help support whatever she was trying to do. The investigation uncovered a September 25, 1984 invoice from the American Type Culture Collection of Microbes, showing an order received by the Rashanish Purim Laboratory for Salmonella typhi, the bacterium that causes a life-threatening illness of typhoid. So some of you who are not from the U.S. might be 
concerned or are wondering how did they possibly get medical grade or laboratory grade salmonella, if you go on the internet, there's a lot of labs that sell stuff. Like you can go and get like HPG, human growth hormone. Um, you can like really get a lot of stuff from labs on the internet. It's really crazy. It's really weird. And it does not surprise me that all the way back in 1984, you could just walk up to a lab and be like, hey, I'd like to get some salmonella. I'm going to run some experiments. And they were like, okay, just sign this release that says you're using this only for medical purposes or lab purposes. That's really all they make you do. They just make you sign something that says you're just using it for medical or laboratory experiments and that you promise you're only going to use it for that. And then they just sell you a culture of whatever, or they sell you a vial of whatever. You can buy botulism, which is medical grade uh, boat, which is what Botox is made of. There's all kinds of stuff. Literally, you can just buy from labs. It's it's really, really not regulated well. Uh, so basically, as long as it's not on the terror watch list, you pretty much can get a lot of medical grade stuff from labs. According to 1994, a study published in the Journal of Sociology of Religion, most Sinyasins indicated that they believed that Rajanish knew about Ma'anid Sheila's illegal activities. Francis Fitzgerald wrote in Cities on a Hill that most of Rajesh's followers believed him incapable of doing willing violence against other people, and that almost all thought the responsibility for all the criminality was Sheila's. The followers believed the guru had not known anything. Karu wrote in Toxic Terror that there's no way to know what extent Rajanish participated in the actual decision making. His followers believed he was involved in every important decision that Sheila made, but those allegations were never proven. So you have half of the camp that believe he could never be involved in violence, but at the same time, they believe that she never did anything without his approval. But then you have people saying that she would edit and cut together his teachings so that they would justify the stuff that she was doing. So some people believe he knew, some people did not. Rajanis insisted that Sheila, who he said was his only source of information during his period of isolation, used her position to impose a fascist state on the commune. He acknowledged that the key to her actions was his silence. Rajanis left Oregon by plane on October 27, 1985, and was arrested when he landed in Charlotte, North Carolina, and charged with 35 counts of deliberate violations of immigration laws. As part of a plea bargain, he pled, not, he pled guilty to two counts of making false statements to immigration officials. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and a fine of $400,000 and was deported and barred from re-entering the United States for a period of five years. He was never prosecuted for the crimes related to the Salmonella attack. Sheila and Pua were arrested in West Germany on October 28, 1985. After protracted negotiations between the two governments, they were finally extradited to the United States and re-entered Portland on February 6, 1986. They were charged with attempting to murder Rajanish's personal physician, first-degree assault for poisoning Judge William Hulse, second-degree assault for poisoning the Dallas Commissioner Raymond Matthews, and product tampering for all the other poisonings in the county, as well as wiretapping immigration offenses. The U.S. Attorney's Office handled the prosecution of the poisoning cases related to the 10 restaurants, and the Oregon Attorney General's Office prosecuted the poisoning cases of Commissioner Matthews and Judge Hulse. On July 22, 1986, both women entered Alford pleas. So for those of you who are not really familiar with the American justice system, an Alford plea is when you as a defendant say, okay, 
I recognize that you have enough evidence to find me guilty, but I'm not admitting any guilt. I'm just saying that I can be found guilty, but I'm not admitting that I am guilty. The, for the Salmonella attack and all the other charges, they received sentences ranging from two to from three to 20 years to be served concurrently. Sheila received 20 years total, 20 years for the attempted murder of Rajanish's physician, 20 years for the first degree assault in the poisoning of Judge Hulse, 10 years for the second degree assault in the poisoning of Commissioner Matthews, four and a half years for her role in the attack, four and a half years for the wiretapping, and five years probation for immigration fraud. Pua received 15, 15, seven and a half, four and a half respectively for her role in the first four of these crimes, as well as three years probation for wiretapping. Both Sheila and Pua were released on parole early for good behavior after serving 29 months of their sentence in a minimum security uh, federal prison. So when they say concurrently versus consecutively, concurrently means all at once. All the sentences were to be served at once versus consecutively, which means back to back to back to back. Sheila's green card was revoked and she moved to Switzerland. She remarried there and went on to run two nursing homes in Switzerland. And that is really damn scary. So that was the story of the Rajanishas and their insane attempt to take over a town. Join me next week when we look into the story. I'll actually join me this week because I will release this one tomorrow. This we look into the story of the the nose. He is a Dutch criminal. Some consider him a mob boss who kidnapped the head of the Heineken brewery. So I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>